A, it's sort of stripping down and really looking at how we dehumanize each other and how we really are all equal and we are all the same and we are extensions of each other. I've said to my young, my, my daughters who are now 18 and 16 since they were little that our outer environment reflects our inner environment, what's going on in here. And if we are looking at each other as strangers, as competition, we're dehumanizing each other, but we're also hurting ourselves. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today we are joined by Susan McClellan. She is a nine-time best-selling author, and her latest book entitled Every Falling Star is the first to portray contemporary North Korea to a young audience. It is an intense memoir of a North Korean boy named Sungju. He was forced at age 12 to live on the streets and fend for himself. To survive, he creates a gang and lives by thieving, fighting, begging and stealing, rides on cargo trains. As much as this story is unique to North Korea, there are millions of stories, just like Sungju's, that exist in the world, yet we very rarely come across them. But when we do, we find the space to reflect on our own lives We find ourselves in their stories, and as a process, we transform our own perspective of what it means to be human, to achieve the dreams that we have for ourselves, and ultimately, to achieve the extraordinary. So without further ado, into Susan McClelland. Well then, after that rousing introduction to the Matt Brown Show... Hopefully our guests can can meet that expectation, but certainly from uh, our initial chat, uh, this is going to be a rock star episode right here on the Matt Brown Show. Susan McClelland, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So you are joining us live from Toronto, um, and Hi. live is live. Uh, we are broadcasting this on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. This isn't a business show for today necessarily, um, but you are all humans, so this will be for you if you are checking this out. So, um, so Susan, you wowed me with your initial like a kind of two-minute story. So let's start there. Uh, who are you? What are you about? Uh, who and uh, you know what kind of keeps you up at night? Um, first of all I never seem to be able to stay up at night I'm a morning person so I tend to fall asleep between 10 and 11 which pisses my children off especially in COVID their schedules have reverted and they're almost up all night long so I hear these pitter-patter feet so um, I'm a a journalist um, predominantly magazine although I started off uh, writing for newspapers Um, and uh, and I did a story uh, during the start of uh, the Iraq war in 2003, and it was on the sort of movement of war to civilians, and it featured a young girl from Sierra Leone who uh, was caught up with the RUF and had her uh, arms amputated and... um, Fast forward to Ishmael Bey when he wrote his story, A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier. Um, this girl wanted to meet him. So it was almost like the two factors wanted to meet each other. And during that meeting, Ishmael said, you know, what we need to hear next is the story of a girl from the war. And Maria Chu sort of slipped her arm through mine and she said, will you help me write my book? And so that was my first book. And it really was a fluke. 
it ended up going all around the world and it really launched my career as a book writer, particularly for young adults. I, I like writing for that age group. Um, and so I've written from there. I think I'm on my ninth book. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's my background. Well, that's quite a background. Um, so one of the things that does certainly strike me um, is the kind of, I would say, the thread that ties all these books together. Um, these are stories really that I think are incredibly inspiring because they paint a picture of reality that many of us sitting in our ivory towers here, um, you know, wherever that might be, we don't really, we don't really fully, well, first of all, we don't hear about these stories and, um, and I'd want to understand from your perspective why that is, because I find, you know, I, I, I'm starting to cover more and more of this kind of story, um, you know, on the show. And every single time, it's truly remarkable what uh, these stories demonstrate about the power of the human spirit to really overcome any kind of uh, adversity. Um, and even today, we're going to probably focus on, um, you know, your one of your books, Every Falling Star, the true story of how I survived and escaped North Korea. I mean, if you look at the headline around that book, I mean, it's it's exactly what I'm talking about, you know. Um, and so what is it in your, in your um, opinion that um, really uh, activates your curiosity about these kinds of you know, inspiring stories that aren't really found in the public domain? Well, I guess even starting as a journalist, I was always drawn to the human experience. And, you know, all of these stories, while they, I, I really enjoy um, removing from my own mentality where I come from and my own background and studying a different culture and, um, and through that, um, reflecting that in my book, whether it's even the language, like I'm doing a book right now with a young woman from Jamaica, and we're doing all of the um, dialogue in Cre Creole. So, but at the end of the day, all of these stories, they're all connected to us because it's all about the human experience and how these young people, and I've just finished a book for Bloomsbury on a child survivor of the Buchenwald concentration camp. Um, it's all about the resiliency of, of the human spirit. So while all of these are reflecting a different culture, a different mindset, I mean, particularly with North Korea, you know, there's no capitalist culture there. There's things so much different from us, but there is still the love of family. There is the connection between individuals. And it's in finding the, these young people, finding themselves in the most difficult of circumstances, how they're able to navigate through that. And that's where we are all one. You know, we all have the same sort of journey, um, whether it's war, whether it's family, whether it's just, you know, survival. And that's why I like doing these stories. Well, what's um, especially, I suppose, unique about the, and you mentioned it uh, in your first kind of preamble around, you know, writing uh, the story, these kind of stories for the youth. Because if you think about, you know, like I'm, I employ over 30 people and they're all millennials. And um, mm -hmm. one of the points my wife said to me um, yesterday, in fact, she said to me, they don't have two decades of experience. You know, uh, they, they, don't, they haven't learned to cope. Do you understand? With, um, with the realities of life. 
Um, and so inevitably what happens is when life throws them a curveball or whether they're born into subject poverty or whether they're born into an environment uh, you know, like North Korea as an example, um, you know, that you're not born with coping skills. You, you're just thrown in the deep end. And if you don't have the support systems or a community like in Africa, I know you spent a lot of time here and le- would love to get into that with you. Um, but as an example, you know, in Africa, there's that saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, yes. And so, you know, if you don't have those support systems, you're probably not going to make it. Um, but yeah, go ahead. No, what I was going to say is uh, I've been asked that, you know, how do these children survive? Mm. You know, uh, of, of the people that I've written with, how do they survive? And particularly in the Buchenwald book, um, there has been a psychologist, and I hope I get this right. There's been a psychologist, uh, a psychiatrist in British Columbia who is a child. Um, he was a hidden child during the Holocaust, and he has done some research on this. He's looked at the hidden children, and if for your viewers, the hidden children were very young uh, Jewish children that during the Holocaust were either given over to orphanages, other families to be cared for. These children tended to be very young babies below the age of three, four. And then you have the thousand or so boys that were found in Buchenwald. And I am going somewhere that with this. Um, uh, that, you know, they experienced the worst of the worst. They saw their families killed in front of them. They suffered starvation, torture. They were living on a knife edge for years, especially Robbie, who I've just written about. You know, his experience started in 1939 when he was only nine years old. But the study that this one professor has done, Dr. Robert Krell, um, has shown that you would think that the boys, and even when the boys were rescued from Buchenwald by the Americans, psychologists that visited there said, you know, they're not going to make it. They're not going to live past the age of 30. Mm. But they all, Ellie Wiesel, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, is one of those boys, predominantly those boys who survived the Buchenwald concentration camp have gone on to live quite productive, wonderful lives. They have jobs. They have contributed. They're humanitarians. They have wonderful families. Whereas the hidden children, as one Jewish survivor said, you know, most people think they've won the lottery. You know, they survived. But they tend to have more of the lifelong difficulties with addictions, problems with relationships. And this is where I identify with this too. And Dr. Robert Krell, as a, as a, a psychiatrist, has studied this. And really, it's that family base. So if you look at the mind and how we evolve, you know, the psychiatrist will say between the ages of womb and three, 80% of our brain is wired. Between three and seven, the rest is there. Those boys that survived Buchenwald, they had solid grounded families and communities before the Holocaust started. Whereas the hidden children, young, they had fragment. They didn't know who they were. And so when I'm asked that question, how did the subjects of my book survive? It was because all of them, including the boy from North Korea, had very loving family and relationships before his ordeal of trauma really began. So that when he was taken from the experience of being a homeless child 
and re, you know, integrate it into society. Not that his journey was easy by any stretch, but somehow his brain could connect to the love and security and confidence that he had as a child. And Maria Chu, the subject of the Sierra Leone book, exactly the same. She came from a loving, wonderful village of um, aunties and, you, you know, and, and uncles and, you know, friends. And so this is sort of the difference between the subjects of my book and maybe some of these millennials coming from fragmented families, you know. So that's my very long answer. I apologize. But that has been my experience in doing these books where I see the difference being. Yeah, Um, it's a great point. Have you read a a book, um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? Yes. Yeah. So so what you're kind of describing is is – you know, because you mentioned the concentration camp, so that's why I was kind of like, oh, I should mention the book. Uh, I think it's one of the most powerful pieces of literature that anyone can really read. Um, you know, I talk about uh, a lot about the idea of suffering and, and finding meaning through suffering and, and not subscribing to the idea of, you know, the full box of chocolates because, you know, I don't know where that – it actually comes from nursery, nursery rhymes. My kids listen to nursery rhymes all the time. Um, and I can't remember the one in specifically, but it's like you, it's totally conditioning the mind to con- subscribe to the idea of like life's going to be easy or perfect. You know, you're on the other side of the mountain. Guess what you'll find? You know what I'm saying? Um, and so, um, but in reality, the mo- you know, the moment you leave school and you get your first job, you suddenly realize, well, hey, life's actually not a full box of chocolates. It's actually pretty damn hard. Um, and so what we do we t- is we tend to resist the reality of life in that it is suffering largely. Um, and so we, we, we develop anxiety, we get depressed, we, we develop all these qualities that are part of the yin and the yang of human existence, right? Um, and so um, inevitably, though, it's, it's really about growth and finding the, the internal capabilities to overcome whatever the circumstances are that life serves you. Um, and so that book, uh, Victor E. Frankl, is a book about him surviving the concentration camps. And what makes it probably really remarkable is the fact that he was a psychologist anyway. You know, yeah. So he really does unpack this idea of the yin and the yang and the role of hope and faith and all these kind of things. So I highly recommend that you guys, um, you guys kind of check it out. But with that said... Have you discovered something that ties these stories together? In other words, is there a insight that you go, oh, yeah, I keep seeing this over and over again? Uh, is it meaning related? Whatever it might be, is there something that ties them together, some kind of insight that you consistently discover in this kind of story? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. 
I would say it's it's what I've said is that there is a those first few years of life are so important for attachment and belonging and for these young people to form an identity that helps them navigate through their experiences that they're going through. And I, I, I would say that that is the common thread with all of my books is that there is a sense of real love and belonging with family. Um, and that is what gets them through. That's where they can begin to form the meaning, as you said, with Victor Frankl's book, form the meaning in their mind of, of why they've gone through this experience and how they can survive it. That mm. somewhere in their childhood, they can connect to love and something greater than them. And is there a way to, to do that if you don't have access to a family system so what if you're orphaned as an example which i believe is where our story uh, starts i suppose is it how do you pronounce his name sung lee is that Sanju, how you Sanju. Sanju, well, okay. Sun, yeah Sanju was actually orphaned uh at, at a later age so i think he was 10 9 10 um when he found himself alone without his family um I'm not an expert on psychology. I can only describe from my own experience uh, where I had, you know, uh, the loss of a mother very early on in my own life, which may be why I'm drawn to these stories. Mm. I was three. Um, is, uh, it, it is more difficult. I think the psychiatrist will say if you don't have that um, real sense of attachment when you're young um, and sense of belonging, um, you it, it's going to be harder to navigate these um, experiences as Dr. Robert Krell has found with the hidden children uh, from, from World War II, that they have found it far more difficult to find their identity, um, discover who they are. And, you know, we talk about in Canada, the Aboriginal community and generational trauma I'm actually working with Soria Samora. I don't know if you know him. He's a well-known African Sierra Leone filmmaker. He was there during the war. And he and I have talked a little bit about the generational trauma also of Africans. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's far more difficult when you, you don't have that during the first few years of life. Um, so you asked me the common thread, mm. everyone I've ever written about has had solid family, um, at the early stages that they know who they are. Yeah. It's interesting that statement you, to know who they are, because I think, you know, man, many of us, I think that's one question I, so I often say like, don't give your mind questions that it can't come up with like relatively simple answers to, cause that actually causes you stress. Um, more so than it does actually give you any solutions to problems. Like, who am I? You know, well, who am I actually? I mean, like, where does one start? You know, are you a human or you're an entrepreneur? Are you a mentor? Are you an, like, an in, like you could pick a bazillion labels for that. You know what I'm saying? So, so where do you land? But I think it's um, this idea of questions. They really do govern our lives more than I think we care to admit. Um, and like, for instance, you know, what are my unique talents? Um, you know, or gifts, what actions should I take? Um, who should I take these actions with? Um, and so, you know, these are all kind of running in our unconscious around, you know, the, and ultimately what they do is they drive us towards something, a curiosity to find an answer to something as 
is what you've done, right? Um, and these questions, I would say, are often guided from personal experiences, so either a loss or a tragedy or an, a, a systemic issue that you've said you were born into, whether that's, you know, as you mentioned, Aboriginal kind of um, heritage, even of Canada, by the way. I was trying to find the name of the author I, I, I interviewed. Um, he, James Deshook, I think it is. No, no, no. Uh, I'll get it here in a second. Maybe Mav, you're on the you're on the stream. If you can confirm it, but he was a, a Canadian historian, and he also talks about um, Canada's history. You know, um, um, at a time where it's it's still to this day, there's like laws in place where um, you know uh, sort of minority communities are being relegated to these kind of historical injustices of, injustices of the past. But it really comes down to you at the end of the day. You know, you can blame the system. You can blame the fact that, you know, you were born into abject poverty or that you were born into this, whatever it is, there's always an excuse. So if you do want to change the system or if you do want to change your personal circumstance, it really does come down to you. And so I wanted to kind of use that to to, um, to kind of springboard into the question, which is what ties, I would say, maybe rephrase it, how do these youngsters overcome the uh, circumstances that most normal people could never see them overcoming? What's the secret there? <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm not the expert on that, so I can't answer it. But I, I want to just go back to, uh, which may answer a little bit, when you were talking about identity and, you know, being an entrepreneur or that, you're still talking about things outside of yourself, the labels that we put on ourselves living in a society. When I say identity, it is a core sense of attachment, you know, attachment theories of knowing you are secure and safe in the world because of some kind of bond that a child has early on in their life with a parent or a loved one. And that is the identity that I'm talking about. And I think even Viktor Frankl talked about when he talked about, you know, at the end of the day, love, right? Mm. It's, it's not the labels that we put on by going out. It's a sense of as some root that we can build and go from. And when that root isn't there because of trauma, because of uh, a very early on life experience, like with generational trauma, where you've got fragmented families, you've got a history, both in Africa and in Canada and in Australia with and the United States, where very, very early on, you've got generations of families where, you know, from the residential school system to uh, adoption programs, where they just don't have that sense of security. And that you need. That I found with all the subjects I've worked on, at the end of the day, there is something inside of them that makes them feel secure, that they are entitled to be here, that they are worthy, that they can be loved, that they are love. And when that is not there early on, that I think, and, and, it would be great to have a psychiatrist on the show at the same time who can weigh in at this, at, with all of this more. Mm -hmm. But when that is missing, then you have the problems. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of us um, battle with this idea of self-worth. I mean, if you think about, uh, let's talk about entrepreneurship, right? So, um, you know, this is mainly a show for entrepreneurs and we highly do encourage people to start businesses. And so it's often come up on the show, like why don't people start businesses more? Do you know what I mean? Like if you're really unhappy in your dead-end corporate job and uh, and you're not prepared to make the move, then you must be happy in your misery, you know. Uh, but that's also not exactly 
uh, an ideal situation to be in. Imagine being happy in your misery. I mean, like that's not exactly, <laughs> you know, uh, the, uh, a situation one wants to be in. So then you say to yourself, but why don't people just do it? Why don't they just start the business and take what and take whatever comes, you know, and deal with it? I mean, that's fundamentally what entrepreneurship is about. For as long as the world's going to have problems, there's going to be entrepreneurs who are going to be solving that stuff and making a killing. Um, some will obviously fail, but of course, those who make it will obviously largely win big. Um, and so it, for, for me, what I've kind of, or what I should say, I'm hypothesizing currently, and I'd like to get your views on, on this kind of idea about what, and the link between ideas of self-worth. Am I really worthy of love? Am I really worthy of, you know, of more than what I currently have? Because I think what really does drive all of these, you know, stories that you cover in your nine books and uh, what I've seen in, on my side of the podcast is that we all want to become better tomorrow than we are today. That's a fundamental truth about human existence. Um, and so uh, it, it ultimately comes down to a number of things, but largely it's about the idea of that I am worthy of this change. I am worthy of being a success. I'm worthy of being uh, or being everything that I was meant to be. I'm worthy of expressing or activating my full potential. You know, I'm, I'm worthy of being successful, but we don't believe that sometimes. And I wanted to get your views, uh, Susan, on that. Like, um, you know, how do we activate the better part of ourselves to do I should that? actually get my 16-year-old because she is an entrepreneur. Oh, is she? Uh, Great. She, she, and, and I'll tell you it from her own experience. So um, she in, and I'm hearing footsteps, so I'm hoping they got my text message that I'm doing this so they don't come and interrupt. But, um, you know, Starting very early on, and I'm sure it's the same in South Africa, um, it certainly is in many mainstream schools in the West. You know, she she went to school and so did her sister, but very, very early on, um, you know who you need to interview is Dr. Gaber Maté about all of this. I, I'll call you about some, some, yeah. some of these skills that you should have. But she certainly found very early on um, – Charlotte more than my daughter, Lauren, uh, a culture where very quickly it went from the family to her peers being the most important in her life. And so we talk about girls uh, being astronauts, uh, being scientists and, and asking the question, why are they not the CEOs of more companies? But certainly what I have experienced with girl culture particularly today, more so than I've ever experienced, is there's a sense of pull down and competition and, you know, the mean girls. And so Charlotte, she was bullied in grade three. Then she moved on to wanting to be popular in grade four. And then she had a great teacher in grade five that reminded her and sort of pulled her away from the other girls of who she was and her worth. And so she started her own company from that called Girl Days. And it just sort of evolved from there where it's to build self-esteem and confidence in girls and also show, ha hang a mirror up to the culture that makes people conform and makes them not take risks and makes them compete with each other. And so 
when we talk about entrepreneurship, particularly women and girls, I think we need to talk about this sense of competition between women and girls. Mm -hmm. You know, there are enough studies done that if you've got a boardroom of 12 people and two of them are women and the rest are men, the two women are looking at each other as their competition versus the men. And so if we're looking at why uh, people are not taking those risks with entrepreneurship. I can't speak for males, but I can speak for young women. It is that sense of uh, looking at each other as competition and how do we conform into this culture as opposed to taking risks and being our full potential. There is definitely some problems within girl culture. You've seen the movies, Mean Girls and whatnot, uh, the bullying that exists out there. Th- these are very serious issues we need to talk about. Mm. Um, you're touching on some very important points there. Uh, I just want to echo, you know, if you think about um, what you mentioned there around um, the stigma really around uh, young girls being coming entrepreneurs and kind of holding up a mirror to these kind of ideas um, that, um, and, you know, com- com- you know, I just want to say amazing job. Um, six, 16 years old, you said, hey? Yeah. Well, that's crazy. Uh, crazy cool. Um, but um, but uh, certainly, if you think about going back to this idea of like, you know, you're born into, uh, like, let's talk about South Africa, right? So it's, there was the apartheid system. So the apartheid system was, was less about separating people, right? Black and, it wasn't about, yes, there was, you know, whites only beaches and all this kind of stuff, which is ridiculous now looking back. But, um, but certainly it was more about convincing black people that they were not good enough. Yeah. That's what it was. It was less about, you know, well, you can't go to these physical places. It was that you're not good enough. And so the environment that we are experiencing often creates ideas that aren't necessarily true. And what you just said, which is around that it's competitive, right? Um, yeah. and, and, the, and why are things competitive? Well, because naturally as part of our human psyche, certainly, but I think a large reason why things are, are, are competitive is because we believe that there's not enough to go yes. around. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. and so, and so we have to interrogate these ideas, um, that, yes. that kind of sit within our, our consciousness or maybe unconsciousness to, to a certain extent. But certainly if we don't do these kind of things, like if we don't interrogate, well, is there enough? Of course there's enough. Or if there's enough, then, you know, I believe that the universe is an abundant place. And therefore if I start a business, there will always be enough. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so um, I wanted to kind of get into that with you, if you don't mind. Um, but how do we, um, or how should I say, these uh, these youngsters that you've, these stories that you've covered, um, how do they sort of um, create a mindset that really does unlock a new model of the world uh, for them? Is there is there kind of a value system, or, or is there anything habitual that you've discovered that really allows people to break through this idea of that, you know? there's not enough for me or whatever the case is. I've never thought of that in the context of my books. I think I've more thought about that in the context of my daughter's business. Mm-hmm. Um, who's been, uh, she's been in many, many um, incubation programs as well um, is flip hanging the mirror up so people can see how we are competing and hurting each other, how we dehumanize each other. You know, as I said, you asked me to begin with, what is, if there's a quote, and it's not so much a quote, I, it probably is a quote, but, you know, the, the mother of 
um, the subject of my last book, you know, she said that when she meets other people, it's she, she's meeting herself. And so, A, it's sort of stripping down and really looking at how we dehumanize each other and how we really are all equal and we are all the same and we are extensions of each other. I've said to my young, my, my daughters who are now 18 and 16 since they were little that our outer environment reflects our inner environment, what's going on in here. And if we are looking at each other as strangers, as competition, we're dehumanizing each other, but we're also hurting ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I think I can't speak to abundance and, and all of that, but I think the first step is shining a mirror up that, you know, to, to the human experience and our, 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 where we are, and whether it's spiritually or just psychologically, that, you know, if we're here, we're of value, but so are you and this person and this person. And that, you know, I, I said very early on to my own daughters that whatever they accomplish in this world is wonderful and beautiful, but until everybody has the same opportunities, you know, that's not good enough. And that, so I think with my daughter's company, she's sort of a hanging a mirror up through video. She's a professional actress too. So she started doing this with parodies of girl culture and not just the tearing down of girls with each other, the stare and the mean girls, but she was also getting into the parents. And then through that, hanging a mirror up so that the, the young girls go inwards and they begin to redevelop their self-esteem and, and focus on what is of value to themselves and seeing each other as extensions of themselves. And I think that's the start. Yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting that point you landed around dehumanizing each other because one could argue that that's largely what's happening in North Korea to some extent. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, North Korea is um, it's an anomaly. You have a, military, a militar militaristic culture. Uh, it was completely based on isolating themselves from the outside world, um, propaganda. Uh, there was no freedom of speech. Um, but certainly, uh, and, and I've done two books on North Korea. I worked with a, a woman to tell her story as well as Sanju. Under Kim Il-sung, the first leader, North Koreans actually, despite their state system and the isolation, um, they still had, and the propaganda and the spying on each other, uh, they still felt some sort of self-worth. Uh, but when the state, the food supply system began to break down, at the same time, the country was experiencing a great famine and the initial leader, Kim Il-sung, died. Um, it all became fragmented. There wasn't a leader to pull them together. People were starving. People began to turn on each other. Uh, people began to go into China and began to create this underground capitalist culture going on in North Korea. Um, so people have asked what's going to take to change North Korea. And again, I'm not an expert, but certainly from working within North Korea and with my North Korean subjects, uh, it could be something from the external, but it's going to be the young people in the country that I have information. They're slipping information into each other uh, through China, uh, through expats that are sending stuff in, uh, through this underground economy that the young people have created. They're your force. They're the ones that, given the opportunity, are going to change that country. How's it, guys? Just a quick one to say, did you know that due to COVID-19, 
that the small business sector in South Africa is currently at risk with close to 525,000 formal SMEs locally, employing 6.6 million people. These businesses are at greater risk today than ever before. You know, as a community, we need to do as much as we can to help SMEs succeed and survive during this time. And to this end, I've decided to give away free copies of my number one Amazon bestselling book, You're in the Game Today, which shares the 12 principles that high-impact entrepreneurs, billionaires, and world champion athletes use to overcome the impossible and achieve the extraordinary. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy or maybe share a copy with an entrepreneur that you feel could benefit from this incredible story, please head on over to mattbrownshow.com Hit the Your Inner Game link, put in your details, and we'll deliver a digital copy to you instantly. And for more information, guys, about the book and more developments around the Matt Brown Show, head on over to mattbrownshow.com. How does one research something? I suppose he was there, right? So how could you, uh, before, I want to get into the, the meat and potatoes about the kind of writing process, if, if you don't mind, yeah. just now. Um, but I think for our viewers out there who potentially haven't uh, had a chance to read the book, um, can you just give us a little bit more context? Yeah, so who was Shung Lee? Where did the story begin? Where is it set? Obviously, it's North Korea. Uh, but, um, you know, walk us through some, some breadcrumbs there just so we can start to paint a picture of the story. Sure. So Sunju was born into what would be considered an affluent, affluent family um, in, in North Korea, in Pyongyang, the capital. Uh, his father was uh, in the military and quite high up, uh, held a very high position. Um, but after the death of Kim Il-sung, the father said something to the new leader. And being a country that doesn't want any form of opposition, uh, the family were exiled to the north where they were having a great famine. The father, for a year, they tried to survive, but, you know, school was now out of the question. Um, they, you know, they were picking herbs, they were hunting, uh, there was no food. So the father went out in search of food and to get something for the family. Um, and got trapped in China and wasn't able to come back. And the mother went out in search of food, um, thinking she would be right back, and no one knows what happened to her. We have our theories. So Sungju, at age 10, found himself homeless and had to survive on his own. And really, this is like an example of, say, the son or daughter of a CEO of a major company in an urban setting, you know, living a very luxurious life with all the opportunities, private schools, and, you know, Shangju was doing a type of karate that was very big, and his entire destiny was set for him to be a, like his father and a general. Um, and finding himself with nothing, so he survived for four or five years, uh, forming a band of young people, traveling around the country, stealing, pillaging, ending up doing drugs uh, until his grandfather found him. And, um, and then his grandfather took him to the home. And about seven, eight months later, uh, a trafficker uh, came looking for Sungju and the father had been trying to find him the entire time and bring him to 
out, out, out of North Korea. And so basically that's Sunju's story and a phenomenal tale, just phenomenal. Yeah, I was going to, there's actually quite a few questions coming in from the old uh, chat line here. So I'm going to actually sure. take one from uh, Victoria. Where is it? Oh, here it is. She says, um, do your daughters read your books and what change or impact do you feel these books have on them? My youngest daughter reads my books. Um, in fact, she I had to give a talk a, a few months ago and Charlotte came with me and she it was for young people. And she actually spoke herself about uh, really enjoying the true stories of um, other young people. Um, my older daughter doesn't, but she's very interested in reading my next book, uh, which is of a young Canadian girl. Um, but I don't know. You'd have to ask why, why one daughter does and my other one doesn't, but yes. <laughs> cool. I got another one here. Um, she says, uh, sorry, she, she Joel here. Do you think Lee's story has paved the way for others to leave North Korea? Because obviously, if you think about it, it's like there's an information wall around North Korea. And so when you get stories like this, they become like truly, like I would say, page turners and, and quite remarkable uh, stories because they exist at all. You know, compared to what you would you know, like, with with the, with the fact being being that we have more access to information than ever before, but with North Korea, it's like it's this massive like black hole, right? Um, so, in that context, I suppose Joel's question is, um, you know, do you think it will pave a, a way for for others to leave North Korea? And then he also says, or do you think he was the first brave person to really write about it? No, he, he wasn't the first person at all. Um, starting in the late, 1990, uh, late 1990s, when the country, as I was saying, was experiencing a famine and the breakdown in the state food distribution system. It, it's a communist country. So the state at that point was, you know, giving everybody their food rations. Uh, there began to, as I said, be an underground economy going back and forth into China um, to get food, to sell, that sort of thing. Um, Sungju was not the first to escape. There have been so many North Koreans. I think um, there's about 30,000 in South Korea. I could be wrong. It could be more than that. Um, and he's not the first person to tell their story either. There's been a number of stories coming from North Korea. Um, North Koreans would not get Sungju's story. Um, in fact, I don't even think the book has been public, published in China. Um, uh, where North Koreans are getting information are that expat community that are living in South Korea and living in China. There's a large number of uh, North Koreans that live in the Chinese, uh, the North Korean, the Korean prefecture of China. And they're sending information back into North Korea. So that's where uh, the information is coming from about democracies, about money, um, about how the rest of the world works. But in Pyongyang, like I, I have gone to the countries of all the subjects that I've ever worked with. Um, actually, that's not true. I haven't been to Iran. But um, North Korea, even if I wanted to go, uh, my entire visit would have been totally state controlled. I wouldn't have been able to get beyond Pyongyang. Um, and anything I would see there would be what the state would want to show me. So Sungju's story wouldn't even make it into to North Korea. It's interesting that, right? Um, I, and I've got another question here from Simon. He says, 
Um, can you describe what ordinary life is like actually in North Korea? Well, um, it depends where you live. And I can't actually be saying right now, uh, because certainly the people that I worked with, you know, they left in 2005, 2006, 2007. So I can only tell you from what um, has been existing there. But if you live in Pyongyang, the capital, um, and your life is probably very structured, uh, but you have food, um, you, 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 you have art, um, certainly it's state-controlled art. It's not a lot of freedom of art, uh, music, um, education, uh, quite probably high education. Um, but again, state-controlled, no freedom of real thought. Once you move out into the, ur- the rural areas uh, and the poor, poor peasant life, uh, very poor, probably uh, very engaged in some underground economy to survive. Uh, so it, it really depends on where you're living. If you're living near the Chinese border, uh, you probably have a lifestyle that involves some sort of trade back and forth into China. You keep mentioning, um, no, I'm, I have to ask you because you <laughs> keep mentioning it, but um, you, you, you mention, uh, well, before I get asked the question, so have you watched that film, The Dictator? Yeah. So uh, for those of you don't, who don't know the film, it's a funny film. I can't remember the actors' names. I'm terrible with names in general, but the actors' names is very funny, basically, and they go and they like meet Kim Jong-un because they're like, you know, TV hosts, whatever, and he wants to change the perception of North Korea, blah, blah. Anyway, it's super funny. And so, um, so but the, the reality is, though, that that's probably the first kind of take on North Korea through the eyes of Hollywood in a humorous kind of fashion and so what that does it paints a picture of north uh, korea that obviously isn't true even though it's funny um and so um uh, i wanted to then use that to then get into the question which is this underground economy what does that mean exactly uh, you know practically speaking when you say underground economy what what does that mean day to day well uh for instance uh one of the subjects I don't think Sanju did this, but another North Korean woman that I know who did this, you know, she would get puppies, she would get certain herbs that they would find in North Korea. She would smuggle them into China and trade those for rice, uh, for certain, uh, there's certain fish that she could find in North Korea and, and bring those into China and sell those and, uh, or exchange them for, um, rice or other food supplies that then she would bring back to her family. Uh, So that's the underground economy that I'm talking about. The underground economy also involves information, the smuggling in of USB keys uh, with, you know, just information about the rest of the world that, that most North Koreans don't know about. Right, cool. Um, so, and then more broadly, um, do you feel that, I, I don't know whether you saw the news recently, that um, Kim Jong-un was apparently sick because he didn't yeah. attend a state like something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, what do you think, I mean, I know I'm asking you to speculate here, uh, but I suppose yeah. you, you've written two books about North Korea, so, you know, go ahead and speculate. Uh, but, um, but, you know, should he pass away, what do you think the ramifications will be 
for the ordinary North Korean? What should we expect? What should we look out for? Oh, I'm really not the person to ask Come for on. that question. Come I would on. Say, <laughs> I would say I would go back again. I mean, first of all, I don't know what you can believe, you know, either from China or North Korea. I don't know what you can believe. Um, and we can talk about China. Um, but uh, I think you, I think, again, I go back to, I think you've got, like you've seen in Middle Eastern countries, I think you've got a cohort of young North Koreans that are poised and set to, uh, once given some sort of freedom, will take over the country. Um, and I think that is, I go back, that that's who you want to invest in, getting them information, really supporting them. And I know that's what Sungju does. He's now in the United States studying his PhD, um, is really investing in the North, young North Koreans who both have escaped to make them future leaders and also the ones that are in there um, to give them the information and the tools to overthrow the government. And I don't mean by arms, I mean by information. Mm. And, um, you know, like, like we've seen with the, you know, the, the, the Middle East uh, and these, um, you know, the, the protests. So I've got some more questions coming in here from uh, Marion. She says, what themes do you feel readers, regardless of where they come from or what their circumstances are, uh, will identify with in the book? Well, what I have found most is with my stories. Uh, when I speak about them or I'm with my subject and we speak together is that uh, it seems to be giving permission for other people to tell their stories. And, you know, I can't begin to tell how many times I've given talks on Maria Chu's story, and probably my next book will have the same impact. It was of a young girl who was sexually assaulted and, you know, was certainly let down by the system. Um, very famous Canadian case, um, is that how many young women come up to us after and say, you know, thank you, I can now speak about my sexual assault. I can now speak authentically about my journey. So that, that I think, is what I have experienced with the young people, with people who have read my books, is that they say, you know, we feel comfortable now in owning our own story. That's, uh, that's really powerful. I love that. Um, I got some funny comment here from uh, Carl. He says, um, hey, Matt, you should ask Susan about, uh, see, the, see the, the tense there, the pause, the dramatic pause. Um, you should ask Susan about Bite of the Mango. Uh, that book is incredible and ties into what you guys are talking about. So Bite of the Mango is the story of a young girl, Maria Chu, who at the age of 12 found herself caught up in the, um, you know, the, the, what was going on in Sierra Leone, 1999, um, where uh, her village was overtaken by the, the revolutionary United Front. And uh, she had her hands amputated by the rebels and then found herself, like Sanju, lost from her family, wandering, uh, taken to um, Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, where she lived in a refugee camp, found herself pregnant from a sexual assault herself, um, 
photographed. She was quite famous uh, because the camp would bring her out to journalists uh, because it was this young amputee with a baby that, you know, Maria too not speaking the language and everything going through uh, translators um, thought she had been sexually assaulted by another child soldier, which was not the case. Um, the child ended up dying. Maria Chu, to survive even in the camp, would have to go out into the road and beg. Um, and then just found herself through serendipity brought to the UK and then eventually Canada. And um, very, very powerful story herself too. And the bite of the mango, the name comes from while she was wandering after her hands were amputated, uh, she met a, a peasant farmer who wanted to feed her and held a mango up for her to eat. And she said, I am not going to eat until I can feed myself. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys, for all of your questions. Um, we're going to play a round of the Injustice League. Um, so, Susan, uh, what is one injustice that you see in the world today? Oh, boy. I, well, I, get, I go back to what I said. When we dehumanize each other, when, when we see each other as or we see a person as not our equal, not an extension of ourselves and somehow feel we need to compete or hurt them. Um, we are all in this together. Cool. Um, and now let's do some rapid fire. So, Susan, um, if you could get into a time machine and uh, go back to yourself when you were um, 21 years old, what piece of advice about life would you give? Just let go. Let go. Um just let go. Just enjoy. Just enjoy every experience. Just let go. Alrighty, cool. And um, what is, well, what have you learned about yourself in the process of documenting these stories? Oh, boy. That's a good question. Um, I guess I've learned that, 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 we all, I go back to that, that we all are all the same. We all have the same instincts, the same, at the core, we're all the same. We have the same drives. We have the same need for love. We have the same need for survival. We also have the same resiliencies in us. So I guess that would be it, that no matter where we come from, whatever our culture and our background is that um, we are all one. And uh, what. Uh, motivates you to continue to write about these kinds of stories? Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated in cultures in general, uh, learning uh, just, you know, the art, the songs that, that, you know, what shapes people. Um, I love to write. Um and I just, I love the people I work with. I just, you know, all of them were still close to this day. I, the trust that's, I've got a daughter coming down. I hope I've got to tell her not to come down. Bring her on, um, bring her on. Tell her, I mean, you, you basically like told her amazing story. It was involved in all these incubators, 16 years old, startup um, success. 
Um, it's, uh, oh, I, I was going to say something that I thought was profound, but I can't remember. Uh, it, it, I know it's the, the trust they place in me. I take very, very seriously. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if some, if I'm working with someone, particularly books, I've always said, you know, my children come first, but then the subjects of my books, uh, if, you know, I've become like their psychologist and their partner and everything for the course of researching and writing these books. And I take that as a real honoring gift and i don't want to let them down well so far so good right um cool so let me just check the chat line here um alrighty, cool um so um let's wrap this up susan um why do you do what you do what gets you out of bed in the morning hmm, um I guess optimism, uh, feeling that it's a gift to be here, that we each, okay, so uh, I hope I don't get this wrong, but Jeremy Rifkin wrote the book Empathic Civilization, where he sort of talked about our evolution as a, as a human humanity, where it's sort of this competitive drive. Uh, one part of us is, is evolving to be competitive and sort of very left brain pulling each other down, you know, very systematic, but we've also got this other that's competing with there that's about universality and love and whatnot. And what gets me out of bed is I am on the journey of evolving with the, the good side and, um, just feel if my children and your children and our grandchildren are going to be here, that we have a role to do. And part of that role is to enjoy it at the same time as we're trying to push a different agenda. Amazing stuff. Uh, Susan McClellan, thank you so much for being yeah. on the map round show. Uh, before thank we, you. before we end, uh, we're just going to do this segment here, which we always do on the show where we give away some stuff. Um, so uh, today we're going to be giving away uh, free copies of my number one uh, Amazon bestselling book, Your Inner Game. A lot of the stuff, funnily enough, that, um, that, uh, that we've touched on today, you know, really about how do you become more, how do you become a better version of yourself and overcome the impossible um, and be extraordinary uh, is covered in that book. And you can get it. I don't would show it on camera, but it's all over there on my other... <laughs> <laughs> on my shelf but uh, you can get it at mattbrownshow.com guys just click on your inner game plug in your details and you will get an instant access copy so uh, Susan thank you once again it's been a real privilege and an honor and thank, uh, you. thank you all of you for checking out on the live stream this is Matt Brown and we'll see you again soon Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, your inner game for free right now today. You can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook.
Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.